by now, we've all heard a lot about Russian interference in the 2016 election. Last month, the FBI confirmed an ongoing investigation into that Russian interference, including the possibility of coordination between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. As that investigation unfolds, plus investigations by the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, there have been several revelations about the relationship between Russia and the Trump transition team. And this frequent breaking news really leads to a lot of questions about what is noteworthy and what is noise. And we're going to help you figure that out today. We'll look at what history can show us about presidents' relationships with foreign adversaries. We'll look at when communication is legal or illegal. And we'll explore what point all of these swirling allegations actually turn into something like concrete findings. I'm Allison Michaels, and this is Can He Do That? A podcast exploring the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Okay, there's a lot to unpack with this story. There's a lot of different moving parts. So we headed to the Capitol to meet up with Karin Demersion. Karin is a congressional reporter here at The Post, but she is especially well-versed in this coverage because she spent time working as a correspondent at The Washington Post's Moscow Bureau. Karin, I'm so grateful you're here to help us with this story. Oh, great to be here with you. So, Karin, in a nutshell, give me your best summary of what really is going on with this entire Russia story. Well, it shifts uh, dramatically every day. And the latest dramatic shift is, of course, that the House Intelligence Committee chairman has recused himself from the rest of the investigation. But basically, you have two congressional committees that are looking into these allegations that Russia tried to meddle in the 2016 elections, that they tried to do so with the purpose of helping Trump um, win the White House. They're also looking into these allegations that information that was classified was leaked to the press. Um, and now they're looking into these allegations that the identities of the president or some of his transition team members might have been outed on surveillance reports on foreign targets that have nothing to do with Russia. So that is even spiraling more out of control. Um, but basically, you've got several lines of inquiry that are all spinning together in the intelligence committees in the House and the Senate, trying to figure out what Russia did, why they did it, and if there was any sort of coordination with the people that worked for the sitting president, which is a fairly serious um, allegation. Okay, so you mentioned that right before we started recording this, Devin Nunes stepped away from the investigation. From He's the House Intelligence Committee chairman. He stepped away from this particular investigation. Can you tell me a little bit more of the backstory? Who is Devin Nunes? What's happened up to this point? So Devin Nunes is a California congressman. He's become this central, very, very visible figure in this investigation because well, one, is a very big deal when you have an investigation of potential collusion or coordination between a sitting president and a foreign adversary like Russia, but also because Nunes was advising Trump during the transition period. He's got ties to the Trump campaign. He was a Trump supporter and he was in the Trump mix after he got elected before he went into the White House. And now he's also in charge of this investigation, or he was up until he recused himself in charge of this investigation looking into it. And pulled a few moves that were not exactly orthodox moves for somebody who's running an investigation. Let's rewind a little bit and cover some of the key players who have been involved up to this point. So specifically, tell us what Michael Flynn's role in all of this has been. Right. So Flynn, who is the former national security advisor, he um, stepped down after it was revealed that he had had 
contacts with the Russian ambassador that he wasn't totally forthcoming about with the vice president. And so the president asked him to resign. But prior to that, he is somebody who had had various contacts with Russian officials. There's a very famous picture of him sitting at a dinner that was sponsored by RT right next to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. And apparently he was paid for that trip and for other sorts of appearances that he made. And the question is, you know, how tied is he to Russian officials? And did that trickle up the chain? And another person where intrigue and attention surrounds him is Paul Manafort. So can you just explain Paul Manafort's role in this as well? Right. And Paul Manafort, the former campaign manager for um, Donald Trump until he resigned uh, over the summer, in the late summer, when um, reports surfaced about the money that he had made working for um, the former Ukrainian president, Yanukovych, who was a close ally of Putin. And and since then, more reports have come out, too, about um, the ties between Manafort and Russians, the, the, the connections between Manafort and Trump and the financial uh, aspect of those as well. So he's somebody else who, though not a part of the current Trump team, certainly played a very pivotal role, was the campaign manager during the time during which the FBI started looking into these potential ties between Trump team members and the Russians. And he's got documented, uh, he's got a resume that goes back through, if not Russia, then one of Russia's very, very closest allies. I mean, Yanukovych was the person that was that fled the country and was deposed basically when Ukraine had its uprising a few years ago. That is a link there that no one's quite sure how, that everyone is probing quite how deep that goes and whether it's just Manafort, the sketchy history, or Manafort that brought that history and those ties straight into the heart of the campaign. Okay, so believe it or not, these are just some of the key players involved in this at this point in time. But to find out if there's been any murky relationships between presidential associates and foreign governments in the past, I turn to Roy Godson. And Roy is a professor emeritus at Georgetown University. He's an expert on this stuff. Here's Roy. What does a typical relationship look like between an American administration and our adversaries adversaries around the world? So what are the standard kind of means of communications, the, the standard approach to a, a relationship with, with a foreign government? The standard, I think, is that you, one maintains official relations, one recognizes each other, and one then maintains a whole slew of activities and engagements with the foreign country on economic issues, social issues, issues about terrorism or anything that would be considered a challenge or threat. And uh, then there's the sort of a positive side, the cooperative side, um, trying to work together to uh, achieve uh, any number of issues, uh, concerns that, that both states and many states would have. So how does a presidential transition period change any of that? You know, should should we see communication typically between um, the president-elect and his transition team and, uh, and a foreign government, or is that something that usually waits until a president takes office? During the transitions, it's a little bit more complicated. The transition teams in recent uh, decades have had some individuals being responsible for contacts with foreign elements, governments, or non-governmental groups. Sort of people come out of the woodwork and want to get close to the victorious candidate, and um, so there would be a, a team uh, or a sub-team uh, that uh, is designed to do this. And sometimes that relationship also can be overt, or it could be a covert relationship that some people want to maintain uh, with a candidate before. They take power. And so you'd have multiple levels of relationships uh, that would take place. Do we have a history of a collusion that we've seen in uh, the American presidency with a foreign government? Well, the word collusion generally generally means illegal and covert. 
Um, most things that it would be illegal would be covert, but not all covert things are necessarily illegal. The word collusion is slightly negative, but there was a time where the Franklin Roosevelt administration maintained a relationship uh, with the British government before his re-election in 1940, during the election period in 1940, and afterwards, before the United States declared war on uh, Germany. The United States was the subject of what we would call active measures by the British in the United States to actually influence both the candidates and their election. The, the British there were in dire straits, in, particularly in 1940, uh, with the Nazis over uh, most of uh, Western Europe. They thought that they needed to have the United States, and, and Roosevelt wasn't sure if that was right, but he was convinced enough to encourage and allow for a relationship with British, the British government and to allow the British government access to America. At, that, at the time in 1940, the United States did not have an alliance with the British. In fact, those who knew about some of these British activities were pretty upset about it and, and protested. This was a, a sort of an example of where to support democracy in the world. The United States made a decision to help the British in that situation without an alliance and actually engaged in what we would call an undeclared war, that they actually helped the British with guns and materials and actually sometimes even guarded British ships as they left American ports and moved out into the Atlantic to prevent the German submarines from destroying the British, uh, British and American ships. And so on. so they, this, was, uh, this was quite secret at the time. Um, collusion, it's, it's, it's close there. This was a subject, a major subject in the 1940 election. Should we be getting closer to the British and helping them in the war effort? And, and as I said, the British, British supported candidates in Congress and for president who uh, took their side of that issue. Right now we're seeing a major investigation into a sitting administration, and that seems kind of huge. Have we seen anything like that in history? I'm, I'm thinking, I don't think we've seen such a... Um, an interest in, in in these kinds of things uh, before. I mean, there have been other incidents, but I don't think I I don't remember anything as um, as uh, important as this. What is it about our political climate right now that has allowed for this story to kind of take on a life of its own, to continue growing, to become this vast web of allegations? What is it about our politics right now that has enabled this? Well, there's a few strains. First of all, the country is dramatically divided. I mean, you didn't ha- you had to just be not asleep through the entire election campaign season to realize that people are bitterly, bitterly divided. It, this has led to a whole bunch of people seeing what they want to see and accusing where they want to accuse because you started off at a, a, a bitterly divided point. Also, remember that we're talking not just about some random country here, but we're talking about Russia. I mean, OK, first of all, you know, there's basically decades worth of history of the Cold War, you know, memory of how Russia was the enemy. Um, And there is a very living current history of that as well, which is that we have imposed sanctions on Russia over their annexation of Crimea and their involvement and meddling in the war in eastern Ukraine. We're not at a good place with Russia right now. Bitter divisions in politics with the cherry on top of the Trump-Clinton presidential race and Trump's election, plus Russia, which is just, you know, 
<laughs> its own beast that you can't really recreate that with any other country. Put them together in one pot and stir it up. And that's what you got right now. And that's why we're where we are. As a result of all this finger pointing, what we what's really emerged here, as you've sort of mentioned is two storylines, one about the presidential relationship with Trump associates in Russia and another really about surveillance and leaks during the Obama administration. I had a lot of questions about this. So to explain the laws around both of these topics, I talked to Benjamin Wittes. He's a senior fellow in government studies at the Brookings Institute, and he's editor in chief at Lawfare. How much contact is coordination? How much coordination is collusion? Okay, so first of all, I don't think that the relevant question that's in in the public debate, we say coordination, collusion, but that's actually not the relevant legal standard. The relevant legal standard is uh, there are several. So one is agency. Have you been an agent of a foreign power, either within the meaning of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which allows for surveillance of foreign agents, or within the meaning of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which is a law that requires people who are functioning as foreign agents, which isn't in and of itself illegal, to register. And uh, so, you know, a a component of have you acted on behalf of a foreign power in a fashion that would constitute some sort of espionage or criminal activity. So people collude with foreign powers all the time. For example, the other day, I had some coffee with a woman who represents the government of Estonia. And the Estonians have a wonderful program of uh, digital identification And uh, we had a conversation about that. And I I could be said, I suppose, to have colluded with her. I gave her some advice about how she should think about expanding that program. And I think, you know, she was interested in that. And uh, and I I, I certainly didn't remotely, I don't think, do anything wrong in the course of, of doing that. So, you know, the idea of collusion with a foreign government is not in and of itself improper at all. What is improper is... If you are helping, acting in an agency capacity with respect to a foreign government in its intelligence activities against the United States. What is a very obvious violation of the law, whether it be a transaction or an interaction? What's something that's that, you know, nobody can kind of look at and ignore as a clear violation? Okay, so the the most obvious example of that would be espionage, right? So if you're knowingly helping them conduct a foreign intelligence operation or a foreign covert action against the United States, that would almost certainly violate some criminal law or another. Now, which it would violate would very much depend on what precisely you did. The, the, the most obvious example it would be providing them information that you're not supposed to be providing them, right? If, if that information were classified, for example, that would be a, a form of espionage. If they are engaged in illegally hacking somebody, which is what, what is said to have happened here, and you are knowingly assisting them in that, you could certainly uh, be charged with conspiracy to violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. 
So theoretically, if people are doing these things, if people have done them, which again, you know, we don't have answers to quite yet, but if they're doing them in the in the name of or on behalf of President Trump, what happens at that point or President-elect Trump at the time? You know, are we looking at can you indict a sitting president? Would he even be the person indicted in this case? It would it be the people who, you know, took these steps? How much knowledge does he have and how does that play a role in what he might be involved with? As a general matter, you cannot be prosecuted because of something that somebody else did. And if you had a bunch of people working for you that were doing bad stuff and you didn't know or it can't be proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you knew, you generally cannot be prosecuted for that, though you might incur civil liability. You might incur, if you happen to be the president, you might incur political embarrassment. If you want to show that the president is responsible in some criminal respect for the Russian hacking, and for whatever it's worth, I don't believe that, Um, you would have to actually show that the president knew and took part in some sense, including uh, encouraging the dissemination of it. I mean, it doesn't have to be he physically hacked something himself, but merely being the beneficiary of somebody else's criminal activity is generally not enough to make you accountable. Now, you raise a separate issue, which is whether the president can be indicted. And this is one of those great uh, untested questions of federal separation of powers laws. The weight of opinion is that the president cannot be indicted while he is in office. So generally, the remedy that you have against a president who has violated the criminal law is you impeach the president, and then once he is removed, he can be prosecuted in the normal course of the law. What kind of financial dealings can you have with a foreign government? I don't think there are any legal restrictions on the president-elect's financial activities. I I think the restrictions that exist are uh, historically one of normative expectations of the presidency. And Presidents don't do certain things and president-elects don't do certain things because that's not the way presidents behave. Now, one additional point is that there are a set of financial entanglements that, with foreign governments that everybody is restricted from having. Uh, it is not illegal to take money from a foreign government, but it is illegal to be an agent of a foreign government under the Foreign Agents Registration Act without registering. It basically boils down to are you taking direction from is your activities you know for the benefit of and directed by a foreign government or a foreign a, a non-foreign government actor and you know if that is the case you're generally required to register so let's move on a little bit to the surveillance part of this story if you can kind of explain the unmasking process to us, when can the name of Ameri- an American who's not under surveillance, him or herself, when can that be reasonably unmasked and to whom? What does that process look like? What are the normal procedures? And- right. So this is a um, this is something that a lot of smoke has been thrown up in the last week or so. But the actual uh, situation is quite simple. So if you are a surveillance target... Let's just assume for a moment that you're a legitimate surveillance target. I am not a legitimate surveillance target, but you and I are talking right now. And that means that if the government has coverage of you, they are picking up coverage of me. So the question is, how do you protect 
the civil liberties of people who are incidentally collected. Now, the general rule when you're doing overseas collection and you do incidental collection of a U.S. person is that you minimize that. And that means if it's not relevant, you discard it entirely. If the information that you've collected is foreign intelligence, you mask the U.S. person's name. So instead of reporting bad actor referenced Benjamin Wittes, you would refer, you would record that, you know, bad cyber actor uh, was planning to target a U.S. person. And you just replace, it's usually U.S. person number one or something, it's all capitals. And it's, it's a very common procedure for, for protecting the identity of a U.S. person. That is the general masking rule. Here is the unmasking rule. When somebody receives an intelligence report, if for some reason the identity of the U.S. person is itself of foreign intelligence interest, it happens. It doesn't happen all that often, but it happens that uh, the intelligence consumer will say, hey, wait a minute, I need to know who U.S. person number 437 is and can request the unmasking of that person's name. So the the issue in question is then that information gets leaked, right? That's the the point where it becomes not necessarily legal. Is that right? So first of all, leaking uh, foreign intercept information is illegal whether or not a U.S. person's name is involved. I mean, this material is very highly classified material. It's generally classified both because the information itself is sensitive, but also because the foreign intelligence collection process itself is very sensitive. And so this is stuff the government simply does not talk about kind of ever. So leaking the contents or fact of a FISA wiretap is a very, very serious matter. Now, if you're leaking the specific communications of a U.S. person, that is an even more sem- serious matter, not merely because, because of the classification issues involved, but because there are real civil liberties issues involved. That said, that has nothing to do with unmasking. It is possible to leak in a fashion that is inappropriate and criminal, ma- fully masked communications, and it is possible to unmask and not leak stuff and it be completely legal and appropriate. We've got, as I mentioned, these kind of two different storylines. Based on your knowledge of these laws, you know, who, who's going to lose here? Do you think that it's easier, the burden of proof for the allegations against the Trump administration is higher or lower than the burden of proof with the allegations made against the Obama administration? Who do you see as the winner, winners and losers here? These two issues are not parallel issues. It is perfectly possible that neither of them has ultimate legal merit as a criminal matter. It is also perfectly possible that they both do, but they're not interdependent at all. So you're not more likely to see uh, a prosecution on the leak stuff if the Trump stuff does or doesn't have merit, right? Um, I do think if you're asking what I think is the in ascending order of importance, the least interesting component to me is the unmasking question that looks to me like a pretty routine and reasonable, at least based on what I know. Uh, the leaks are certainly inappropriate and I suspect are being investigated. I don't know that, but I, it's the kind of thing the FBI generally will investigate and takes quite seriously. 
Uh, and I think the Russia thing is, is extraordinarily important. And I would not put them on the same plane of importance. One set of issues, though real, is really being thrown up as a way of distracting attention from the other set of issues. So at what point do we see an independent investigation of this? Because at this point, we've had Sessions step aside from the executive branch. We've had Nunes step aside here from the congressional aspect of it. When does it move toward a select committee in terms of, you know, Congress? Might we see a separate independent investigation on the executive side? What's next? Well, you have the FBI investigation ongoing, right? So that is supposed to be as nonpartisan as it gets, basically. You... It raised an interesting question with the idea of are we going to get to an independent commission or a select committee or anything like that? And I don't want to presage because, again, I have not been able to predict half of the shifts that have happened and the timeline upon which that they've happened. But I would guess not anytime soon, if at all. And here's the reason. The GOP leadership has tried to focus on the leaking aspect more so. I mean, if they hand it over to a bunch of independent investigators, they're in charge of where it goes. So with that, there's not a lot of incentive for Republicans to put a bill on the floor that would say, OK, we're approving an independent commission. By the same token, on the Senate side, there's even less incentive to be doing it because the Senate Intelligence Committee is actually doing what is considered to be a pretty decent job. If you have an independent commission, Either what you end up doing is you take it out of the hands of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which they didn't really deserve because they're not as much of a mess as things are over in the House. Or if you end up setting up somehow writing the bill so that there's an independent commission, but you don't take it out of the Senate Intelligence Committee's hands and you're kind of duplicating everything. And then you have a fourth committee that's also asking the intelligence community for its resources and its time. And there's more potential headbutting there. But they're so far away from that point And there's so little incentive for the GOP in the House to drive that home that I don't see how you actually get this to the point where it gets to the floor, it gets a vote the committee is established or the commission is established and it actually gets free reign to run what it wants to run. One thing that a lot of people have said, or many Trump critics rather have said, that rouses suspicion around Trump's relationship to Russia is his compliments of Vladimir Putin, his sort of seeming pro-Russia stance. My question is really twofold. One is, should that rouse suspicion? And, and the other is, are there some advantages to having a more pro-Russia stance than we currently have right now that maybe some people are overlooking? Yeah. Would the world be a better place if the United States and Russia could work arm in arm? Yes. I guess if that's a pro-Russia stance, then in that sort of environment, sure, it would be better to be pro-Russia. But it's very difficult to tell people to be pro-Russia when Russia is backing dictators and when Russia is very, very opposed to the spread of Western-style democracy and when you know there are human rights questions about re- what Russia stands for and how Russia treats its own people. And it, it's it's you, you can say, OK, to be pro-Russia is better in certain transactions and then yet on the other side, the flip side. Can you be pro-Russia when what Russia stands for is pretty anti what America stands for? And this is a dilemma, right? This is the dilemma of pragmatism versus diplomacy and, 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 and in dealing with what the world sees, not just what we want to be able to affect in limited places. You cannot strike a deal with Russia in Syria or in Ukraine without the rest of the Middle East and the rest of Europe watching and taking notes and drawing conclusions about what's next because of that. Okay, so let's move away from foreign policy a little bit and back to the politics. A lot of the actions that Trump seems to be taking, sort of tweet diversions and, you know, calling Nunes to the White House, those kinds of things. Is Trump successfully you know, kind of diverting attention? Is he successfully spinning up so much noise that he's winning in some way? 
If you are asking in terms of spinning so much noise that he's um, shaking the investigations off their course, I would say no. I mean, the House Intelligence Committee investigation, okay, that's a different beast. But one thing that came up, and there was an open hearing about two and a half weeks ago um, at that that committee where Trump was tweeting about what the FBI director and the NSA director who were testifying at that committee, he was live tweeting about how they had said there's no, you know, indications here of, you know, Russian meddling in the 2016 elections. And somebody read those tweets to Comey. And he was like, yeah, that's not really what I said <laughs> at all. So is, he's succeeding in that regard of, you know, cowing his FBI director into not investigating this, these claims. No, he's not. That's not succeeding. Is he succeeding in changing the minds of people who are opposed to him? I don't think there's any Hillary. I don't know. I haven't taken a poll, but I would be highly surprised if there are any diehard Hillary Clinton supporters who have read his tweets and been like, oh, OK, that's that. That's what must be what it's about. It's actually that I was surveilled. And especially because so many of these tweets have been discredited. Right. But the question is, you know, are his supporters watching that and do they care? When you see Trump go out on these um, on the stump, shall we say, and do these rallies, is he talking about the Russia investigation? Of course, he's not talking about the Russia investigation. He's talking about immigration. He's talking about the economy. I mean, there was a health care bill that rose and crashed in the ashes. You know, other things are happening that do hit people closer to where they live. And especially if they started off from a position that where they were pro-Trump anyway, this is not necessarily going to shake their confidence in him. Right. So for the people paying really close attention to this, I think, well, certainly my biggest question is, what is the timeline for these investigations? When are we going to have reports? When are we going to have conclusions? Um, if these new things keep popping up, will this ever end? Like, what, what's the timeline? That is such an important question, and I have no idea how to answer it. I don't know. Some of the some of the investigators have promised interim reports. Um, they certainly promised more open hearings as time goes by. So we may get markers of where they are with more regularity going forward. But I would be very surprised if this resolves itself anytime soon. I don't even want to put a time stamp on what anytime soon is because it's just... So we usually end this show with a question of can he do this? It's almost impossible to boil this episode down to that question because... What is this? (laughs) What is this? And, you know, so I'm going to phrase this question to you a little bit differently, but it's sort of like how far can these allegations go and at what point does all of this swirling, you know, have a definitive become something else? What time does it become something else? It depends on what they find. If they find that this was all all kind of, you know, troubling, troubling coincidence of all of these people that worked for him, who, that have worked for um, Trump in his ascent to the White House, who had these ties to Russia and their affiliates, then that's just a coincidence. I mean, is it a bad thing to talk to the Russian ambassador? In itself, no. Um, but you know, if it turns out that that's just conversation with the Russian ambassador, then yeah, there's nothing there, right? If it's deeper, if there are, you know, if there is real coordination that happened or real planning that happened, you know, in terms of how they would structure the campaign or when they would time the release of this hacked information or if they knew about the hacked information before, you know, everybody else knew about it. Or if, I mean, and that would be, you know, the political intrigue side, if they knew about, if if there was money that was flowing, you know, for different reasons, that would be really bad. Um, And then the question is, does it kick kicked over to the Justice Department and how does it proceed from there? But again, all of this is speculation of how bad could it get? It could get nowhere. It could get to be nothing. It could turn out to be just a bunch of conversations that look really darn suspicious but are just a really unfortunate coincidence. We cannot know what we're answering in terms of the ability of can they do that until we know what they can substantiate. And it could be really bad in terms of leaks. It could be really bad in terms of collusions, or it could be absolutely nothing. Karin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. 
If you've been listening and you have questions about who some of these key players are and how it's all connected, we have an excellent graphic at wapo.st slash Trump hyphen Russia. That explains the interconnected web of all this. It explains who's who. It explains what has been uncovered so far. So you should go ahead and check that out for additional information. In the meantime, you can follow Karin Demersion on Twitter at Karin. That's K-A-R-O-U-N. And you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. You can also review us on iTunes. It goes a long way, so please do that, especially if you like it. And if you do like it, subscribe if you haven't already or listen wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the very agile and accommodating and flexible Carol Alterman, who works with us every week to get this done. We have design direction from Rachel Orr, and our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio.